0: You're listening to The Visionary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Rival. Each week, I'll bring you conversations with some of the most passionate, hardworking, and limitless thinkers on this planet who have a story to share, a brand that inspires, or a fire inside of them to live life on their own terms. The intention behind each episode is simple, and that's to include you in these conversations so that you can learn, apply, and grow in your own life and business. If I can share one quick secret with you before we begin, it's that we all have a little bit of visionary inside of us. But perhaps, somewhere along the line, someone told you to play small, to play safe, and that led you to live an ordinary life. Tuning into Visionary Life will help you dust off the limiting beliefs you carry around so that you can begin to create your own most visionary life. It's in you, it's in all of us. Let's dive in. Before we dive in, let me share with you a little bit about Healthy Planet. Healthy Planet is one of our sponsors, and I want to give them a massive shout out. They are your one-stop shop for all your natural health goodies. Personally, I want to talk about the health goodies I get that create a non-toxic home for Dave and I. Now, I used to be very DIY with this kind of stuff. I'd be mixing vinegar and lemon and all these things, but... Truth be told, I'm just not really finding the time to be mixing and making potions these days to clean my house. So I've decided to purchase all my non toxic cleaning products from Healthy Planet. Now, did you know that the products that we use to clean our homes can be filled with tons and tons of potentially harmful and toxic ingredients that can affect our skin, that can be inhaled into our lungs, and that are potentially polluting the earth? And that's just some of the repercussions of these nasty cleaners. So that's why I choose to purchase brands that are natural and totally safe, even if they get on my skin. And we all want a sparkly clean home, but we want to do it without the toxic stuff. So right now, I am obsessed with the Attitude brand, All Purpose Cleaner. It comes in a citrus zest scent, and I just love walking around and spritzing that everywhere because citrus essential oil is so uplifting and energizing. It's going to make you want to clean all the time. Now, of course, they have many other non-toxic cleaning products. You can shop all of those at healthyplanetcanada.com. And the best part is you can use code VISIONARY10 at checkout of their online store and save 10% on any order over 50 bucks. So again, use code VISIONARY10 at checkout. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm thrilled to bring you this episode with an incredible human named Alvin Pillabello, who's the founder of an emotional intelligence coaching and workshop company called Mindspace Impact. Ever since I met Alvin a few months back at my co-working space, I have loved having life and business chats with him. And it's been really neat to follow along his journey into entrepreneurship. I also had the pleasure of attending one of his workshops when we first met called The Art of Meaningful Conversation, and I was blown away by the way he was able to deliver such unique and needed information to a crowd, keeping it very interactive and making it look effortless, which is a skill that not many people have. If you're located in Toronto, you must try and check out one of his upcoming workshops, and hopefully one day he brings them online so the rest of you can benefit. More on Alvin and my conversation in a moment, but first I thought I'd give you a quick life update. A year ago today, Dave and I actually celebrated our wedding. So it's crazy to think that one year ago, we were standing at our summer camp location where we hosted it, and we said, I do. And I actually recorded a podcast last year, around this time, all about how to not get stressed while planning a wedding, since that seems to be a common underlying theme, mostly with brides, but I think also with grooms as well. And for me and for Dave as well, it was super important that we didn't let stress get in the way of creating a meaningful gathering. And that's why I thought it'd be really cool to just share a few things because in terms of this podcast episode with Alvin talking about the art of meaningful conversations, and also a book that I just finished by Priya Parker. It's called The Art of Gathering. It's really neat to hear from people how to facilitate these interactions and events that actually go a little bit deeper, right? I knew that when I was planning our wedding, I didn't just want it to be hey, everyone come, give us a gift, dance and leave. It just didn't feel, um, it didn't have that feeling that I knew I loved in events. And so my advice to anyone who is planning a major event or who's thinking about hosting um, something in the near future is to really think about what the deeper why is behind this event and what you want the outcome to be. So for example, yes, you can plan a wedding to get married, to seal the deal, but you could do that in private, right? If that's your deeper why is just to tie the knot, well, you can go to City Hall for that. But if your deeper why, when you think about your upcoming event, or in this case, your wedding, if it's that you really want to facilitate the interaction of two families and ensure that they have a chance to connect in a meaningful and deeper way... And you want that to be in nature because you know that nature inspires all of you to be your best selves. And that gives you some guidance into how to plan that event. So if you are kind of interested in looking further into this, I would highly recommend Priya Parker's book. She talks a lot about how to create a more meaningful interaction or event. And I think this can be carried just over into your personal life too, in terms of When you invite people over for a dinner party, like what are you doing to create memories? And do you want to help facilitate conversation so that it's not just small talk all night? And it's something that I've grown increasingly interested in, and especially after going to Alvin's workshop. So I just thought I'd bring that up now and and remind you of that episode that is in the archives of the Visionary Life podcast. And so being that it was our one-year anniversary, we were able to slip away a couple hours north of Toronto. Um, We just went away to an outdoor spa, and we spent some time hiking in nature and exploring a new little town, and really just taking time away from our daily lives. We both work long hours for the most part. We both love our jobs, but tend to be um, doing our passion projects also in a lot of our free time. So getting away from the hustle and leaving our laptops at home and just remembering why we got married one year ago today. So I just thought I'd share that with you in hopes of inspiring you if you want to read the book or if you want to go uh, check back on that podcast episode. So back to Alvin. Alvin Pillabello founded Mindspace Impact in 2018, an emotional intelligence coaching and Experiential workshop company, helping individuals and teams make better decisions in work projects and create stronger relationships. He discovered his passion for developing others through his leadership positions with the Water Environment Federation, leading teams across the USA and Canada to create professional development and leadership programs. Alvin also has been a salsa dancer instructor since 2008, salsa dance instructor helping people find their inner confidence to express themselves. Developing better emotional intelligence has been Alvin's own journey as well, through evolving his own self-awareness and social awareness in order to better align values and actions with his desired impact on others. Ultimately, Alvin is passionate about the art of reinvention and helping people reinvent their perspectives, mindsets, and acting courageously on their vision when life calls for it. What you're going to love about this episode is that it's extremely relatable. I know that so many of you are exactly where Alvin was a few years ago. Now, in this episode, we're going to chat about why Alvin left his engineering career 10 years into it, networking tips that can help you land a dream job, Alvin is the king of networking, how and why Alvin decided to pursue a career in coaching, why he's passionate about helping people build better relationships through meaningful conversation and being more playful, how salsa dancing has become a part of his teachings, and why the phrase pave your own path does not make sense to him. I myself have realized that I do crave deeper connection and deeper conversation that go beyond small talk So I'm really thrilled to present you this conversation with Alvin, not only so that you can learn about things that he's passionate about, but some topics that are not often explored. So enjoy the conversation and please take a screenshot and share when you're listening so that I know that you enjoyed the episode and we love hearing from you. So enjoy and we'll talk to you soon. Welcome to the show, Alvin. So you and I connected here at our co-working space at Staples, which is the exact reason that I personally love co-working because it just brings you into the space where there's other visionary minds and then it doesn't feel like you're in this whole entrepreneurial thing alone. So um, it's been so wonderful to get to know your story and your journey and I was actually lucky enough to attend one of your workshops a few weeks back and as soon as I sat through that workshop I knew I needed to get you on the show so I'm really really excited to have you here today.
1: Thank you very much Kelsey for having me.
0: So let's go back a little bit and maybe let's give the listeners, they've already heard a quick bio about you, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like just to paint the picture.
1: Yeah, I've had um, quite the quite the interesting journey so far. I was born in Manila, Philippines, and then when I was three, moved over to the Middle East with my parents, in a tiny little island called Bahrain at the time. They had about 700,000 people. Mm -hmm. And then at age 15, that's when we immigrated over to Toronto briefly and then to Hamilton. Mm. I went to finish my last year of high school, went to university there at Mac. Awesome. And what were your interests at the time? Like throughout high school, were you always a
0: creative? I know you studied engineering after that. So was that more your path?
1: Looking back now, to be honest, I realized that I had both an art and science type of interest mix so one of the things that I remember growing up was I loved drawing helicopters Mm. now when I was younger and at the same time really deep into art and science and math Mm -hmm. um, because both my parents were also engineers Mm. so I grew up with Lego Tetris Mm -hmm. all those old games
0: And so throughout high school, did you have an idea of what you wanted to study in university? I know for so many of us, that was an overwhelming decision. Like You feel the pressure from your parents to go in one career path, but maybe inside you feel like you want to go a different way. Did you know what you were going to study in school?
1: I'd say yes. And growing up in Bahrain specifically, I didn't have the same kind of options that are available here in mm-hmm. high school. So engineering always seemed like a default option for me, and I was already comfortable and interested in in, in the sciences and math. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it almost was a default as soon as I applied for university when I came here. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's so interesting, the word default, because I think for many of us, we ended up on the trajectory that we're on by default. Maybe it was that someone planted a seed in our minds when we were younger, or maybe it was that we didn't realize that there were so many options or we were faced with this decision fatigue. And by default, we decided to go one way When in reality, if we would have stopped and tuned in and listened and maybe taken more time, we could have ended up on a completely different path. But I think for many people, um, not knowing what they want to do, they end up just going down um, a certain road just because that's what they feel they're supposed to do, which I always like to be challenging. Um, and, And now looking back, I think gosh, why did I end up studying what I did? And it's always interesting to kind of zoom the lens back and look at that. Yeah. Um, So tell me about your university career. So what did you study? uh, Where did you study? And give us a little um, picture of what those four years were like.
1: My university career ended up being six years. Oh, (laughs) a couple victory laps. Yes. I got into engineering at McMaster in Hamilton, and the first year is common, so we didn't have to pick what specialization we, we needed to have until we were about to go into second year. Mm-hmm. And then I went into chemical engineering. And during that time, I was okay at it. I wouldn't say I was necessarily the top of the class. But I was pretty decent at the different engineering courses that I had. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I found myself gravitating a lot to psychology courses as electives. Mm -hmm. And they definitely were my lowest grades. Most people, you know, took bird courses, as we call them, in university to be able to boost grades. But for me, I was purely interested in the psychology. But Mm -hmm. um, it was also a, a bit of a mind shift for me to mm-hmm. go from a technical to something really conceptual mm-hmm. going through that and then I also filled up my time a lot with volunteering so I volunteered at, at least a couple of different places so one of them was at the career center the local career center at, at the university where I got a fun job I, I got to drive um, a golf cart through campus during career fairs bringing employers Back and forth in their car to the uh, student center, and one of my reasons for doing that was was being the first point of contact and being able to say hello and, and make that first first introduction to the university and get to know what career paths they're in and um, and make contacts that way. Mm-hmm. And the other one was salsa dancing. The salsa dancing for me has had had always been an intimidating activity. Especially, uh, I remember in my first year of university, I would blank out giving presentations mm-hmm. in front of people. I would always be so nervous and I would forget my lines, even though I had the lines right in front of me on a card. Mm-hmm. It's social anxiety. And so when the opportunity came up to try salsa dancing, I went into it.
0: Mm-hmm even though you were terrified to do it, you just got over that hurdle and tried it anyways?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, going right into that directly to the to the difficult situation.
0: Yeah. And so I'd like to kind of stay on that topic for a little bit because I think it's very admirable that you decided to dive into something that a hobby that you had never tried before and that made you nervous but you push through it anyways. So for someone who's feeling like maybe they don't have a thing, like for you, finding salsa dancing seems to have become such a big part of your life. Could you give any advice for how to show up that first time and to get over that hurdle of being so scared that they hold themselves back and don't end up trying new things at all? Like how did you push, push yourself through that boundary?
1: One of the things that helped me out growing up was really getting inspiration from my parents. Mm-hmm. They decided to immigrate and leave their comfortable life to make sure that my brother and I had a, a better future mm-hmm. coming into Canada. And so they were one of the first models for me of going into discomfort. And as I went into different uncomfortable situations over you know, the last... 30-something years that have been alive, mm-hmm. a big part of it is knowing that I'll be okay at the end of it, mm-hmm. using that as an anchor. And then as I'm going through the activity and noticing and self-managing my anxiety and my fear, also realizing what is here for me to learn and mm-hmm. keeping that another question in mind to anchor myself as well.
0: Do you apply that question to a lot of situations in your life? What's here for me to learn? Because I think that's so profound and such a important question to always be asking in good, negative, positive situations. Like it's just it's a really great way to approach situations in your life.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's not easy, though. No, definitely not easy okay. to remember that question in the moment that something is happening. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is relatively common in any person is to play victim and say, this is happening to me right now, even if I chose to go into this Mm -hmm. and to ask the question, what is there for me to learn here? I can divert the attention away from the pain and the discomfort and divert the attention towards appreciating the situation for what it may be able to teach me. Mm-hmm. and find it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Otherwise, I might miss that lesson altogether.
0: Totally. And But I think when people are kind of stuck in the thick of a negative situation in their life and you say, well, there's got to be a lesson hidden inside this. It's really hard to see that when you are struggling so deeply. But I truly do believe that everything that happens to us in life is for a reason. And because there's a learning to come from that,
1: us that we can control there is always a response that we can we can choose Mm -hmm. very true
0: so let's kind of rewind i know we've gone on a little bit of a tangent here but i'd love to rewind to the year that you graduated university with your engineering degree and i read in one of the articles that you had uh, written for that you decided to forego a post-graduation summer trip to europe opting instead for a summer jam-packed with water and wastewater- water-related conferences. I'm wondering what was the motivation for this decision because not too many people are forgoing backpacking Euro trips to get to conferences that maybe they don't know anybody, they're across North America. Take us back to that time in your life.
1: Yeah, I'm going to rewind a couple of months before I graduated I had started a student club at university at McMaster for this water organization called Water Environment Federation and during that time I was responsible for, with a team, um, together we brought in guest speakers, we entered a design competition, and through that I learned that there are so many water and wastewater professionals across, across the world. And I started to become interested in pursuing a career. And at the same time, it was I graduated in 2009, which was in the middle of the big recession, housing crisis in North America. I knew that I wouldn't be able to get a job easily, definitely not through conventional online means. And that networking would have to be my, my path forward. And I also knew that I wanted to enjoy and celebrate my graduation so I was able to combine the two by finding these conferences held by a few organizations getting to go to them for almost free finding the cheapest flights I was working in university um, at the local library and save up some money so I was able to use some of that money to fund myself to go Stay in hostels, eat in supermarkets. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Scrappy. <laughs> to, and then travel to some of these amazing places in the in the US. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think even the thought of that for some people gives them a little bit of anxiety, like going to conferences and networking in order to try and find a job or to make connections. So in your opinion, was this going to be a key um, experience that would set you apart or why did you do this? Like at the root of spending money and time to travel around to conferences, what was the motive there?
1: For me, the networking piece was not to ask for a job. Okay. The networking piece was to understand how people even got there in their careers, mm-hmm. understand how the industry works, how the industry, the water industry specifically was structured, who serves who, how does money flow through the system, how do companies and people make money. and. It was, it was incredible to, to, to have those meaningful one-on-one conversations with
0: mm-hmm. professionals. So you were approaching it with a sense of curiosity, like what have these people done that you can potentially learn from and then apply to your career path? Is that kind of the approach there?
1: Absolutely. There's an advantage in still having a student status and yeah. that all these professionals know what it's like to graduate and not know what to do. So many of them put themselves in my shoes and said, I know how that feels.
0: Mm -hmm. Let
1: me let me push you up.
0: Mm. And at one of your conferences, you told a a story about winning an iPod. Could you share that story with the listeners? Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, One of the first conferences that I went to that summer of 2009, I ended up going to about eight. One of the first ones I went to was in San Diego, California, and the plan was to go to the conference with with one of my best friends and then rent a car, travel all the way up Highway 1, California coast, see the amazing sights all the way to San Francisco. And at this conference, I entered the big conference hall and apparently there were 18,000 people there. And ran into this lovely lady uh, who worked for the American Water Works Association, names Nancy, and she said, "You know, why don't you come to the student-employer reception?" Which I did, and they were giving away prizes. And I thought of a line um, when I was filling out the raffle draw prize ticket, and they drew my name at the end of at the end of the reception, and said. Alvin won an iPod Touch and I go up to the stage and I accept my prize and then I asked Nancy for the mic she hesitantly gives it to me and I say well thank you company XX for sponsoring this prize but and then I held it up I'd like to exchange it for a career just to be funny and and people laughed I went off stage then a few professionals came up to me afterwards saying here's my business card. Give me a call when you get back. Mm -hmm. And I did. So this started this whole summer of information interviewing. And one of these people worked for a global engineering firm, one of their top engineers in water uh, named Simon. And um, I ended up visiting him in Kitchener, Ontario. Mm -hmm. A few months later, met another six or seven people from his office. And in a second information interview, they, they offered me a position.
0: So I'm sure I know what the listeners are thinking at this point. OK, great. You go to all these conferences, you're getting yourself out there, which I think we all know intuitively, whether you're an entrepreneur or working in the corporate world, that we need to be doing more of, right? Most people, uh, they tend to take the easy route of not going out in the evenings and on the weekends and on their holidays and avoid a lot of these networking or conference events. So you go to eight of these conferences in a summer, but what happens when you get back? Like, are you calling on these people? Are you setting up appointments via email? Did you collect a bunch of business cards? Like, how do you go from attending a conference to actually building relationships with people who could be meaningful later in life and give you a job potentially?
1: Yeah, one of the first concepts that i learned because I was volunteering for that career center, they introduced me to the concept of information interviewing, where the number one rule is you don't ask for a job. The number one rule is to understand their their, their industry, their career path. Mm-hmm. So every time I would come home from a conference, I had a stack of business cards. And from that stack, I would choose the ones that I wanted to spend energy on, contacting, asking for time. I'd go visit their office, and whether it was 15 minutes or an hour, I'd be able to have a nice coffee or lunch with them
0: Mm.
1: and learn about their their careers.
0: Such a good tip. Yeah, I think most people they think when they go to a networking event, like you're supposed to be pitching yourself and and saying, I'm searching for a job, but I love the idea of just building the relationship. And I think that goes as a lesson in entrepreneurship too. It's like you never just ask for the sale right away. You give value, you educate, you open up, you share about your product or service, and then the sale, or in your case, the job opportunity, if it's meant to happen, will happen after that relationship is created. Absolutely. So I think the whole informational interview thing for people who are searching for a job or maybe are ready to, you know, move on from their current career path. That's such an important tip to share is that you have to have the right intention um, when you begin building these new relationships. And it shouldn't always be to just ask for what you want right away. Um, you need to spend the time to give them value and show them that you're interested in more than just the money and the title. So absolutely. that's a really good tip.
1: I'm an introvert as well. So as an introvert, going to conferences and then spending a lot of time with people mm-hmm. was absolutely draining. So in between conferences, I took a lot of time to really recharge mm-hmm. and and realizing that networking is about nurturing relationships it's not a means to an end Mm -hmm. of course you you get i ended up getting a job but it was a result of the strength of the relationships that i had built over time Mm -hmm. so they remembered my name and the first time they met me i ended up learning more about them the second time they met me the third time they met me Mm -hmm. they learned more about me and learning more about them Mm -hmm. and that relationship just grows over time Mm
0: -hmm. So you kind of mentioned that throughout this networking adventure, you eventually did find yourself a full-time gig. So can you maybe walk us through your career path, like how that first job unfolded um, and then what happened from there? How long did you spend at this career and what was it?
1: Yeah, so because of the people they met and uh, that I had met and how I had met them, they had the foresight and wisdom, and i super grateful for this, for putting me into roles that really took advantage of my skill set. I knew that I wasn't going to be happy just doing technical work, so they put me in front of people. One of my first roles, even though I was a water and wastewater engineering intern, they put me in front of clients. They put me in rooms facilitating conversations between department managers and operators of treatment plants and, and facilities managers to facilitate conversations around how they prioritize civil engineering projects.
0: And did you ask for that type of role or it was truly just what they saw in you? And they decided to put you in those roles. It's
1: what they saw in me. And at the same time, I had expressed what skill sets I did want to use going forward as well and they listen to that
0: Mm. how how did you figure out what those skill sets were do have you always just intuitively known that you're good at facilitating and being in front of people or did you do a strengths finder test or did someone tell you that you're really good at speaking in front of people How did that happen? Oh,
1: no, no, no. (laughs) I was horrible at presenting. Like I said, I used to blank out in group presentations. And it wasn't until I was in salsa classes and the instructor, who happened to be a civil engineer too, and became my mentor, asked me to help teach. So being able to explain concepts that I knew I could physically do ended up translating to gaining more confidence and courage to be able to come up to someone random at a conference and say, Hey, I'm Alvin. I'm a relatively new grad and these are my interests Um, and and went from there.
0: Mm. It really reminds me too, because I've delivered quite a few workshops in the last few years and people have come up to me and said, how did you learn to get over your fear of public speaking and how do I even begin? And for me, it was actually starting to teach fitness classes, which was something really small and it terrified me. But one by one, each class would become a little bit easier. And for you, it had the salsa dancing that builds that confidence. So I think it's oftentimes other elements of our life that start to prep us, whether we know it or not, for what could be a potential job for us. And so I never discount any of these early experiences or jobs that I used to have because There's a teaching from all of them and you can always learn uh, from a job no matter what it is or um, how part-time or how much you hate it. So I think it's really important to honor those hobbies, those jobs that are teaching you different skill sets outside of your corporate career.
1: Yeah, what I love about that too is by starting off presenting material and content that I was passionate about, it allowed me to improve my skills. Mm -hmm. So that when I came to presenting material that I wasn't necessarily an expert at, I already had the skill set. And then I didn't have to worry so much about the lack of confidence in Mm -hmm. in presenting presenting at workshops. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. And so I, I definitely can't wait to get to the part where we talk about you now doing these workshops. But first I think we kind of need to complete the trajectory of your your corporate career, right? So you're in this first job, you landed it out of university, but how many years did you spend in full time work? And did you work for different companies? Was it the same company for a decade?
1: The first company that I worked for that I landed right after graduation or six months after graduation, I ended up working for them for almost four years. And then from there, I bounced around quite a bit um, with different engineering consulting firms, uh, municipality ranging from a year to two years each. And total spent about, let's say about nine or 10 years um, with a couple of gaps in between to explore other avenues around coaching. Mm -hmm. during that time, I was really focused on the subject of infrastructure asset management, where I helped municipalities figure out where to prioritize their their Mm -hmm. engineering projects. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. And how many years uh, were you in that job?
1: Overall, nine or ten years. Nine or ten years. And at the same time, I was also volunteering a lot for the water organization, Mm -hmm. even after University And that helped me gain my confidence in facilitating workshops as well.
0: Mm. Now, throughout this time, did you ever have visions of, hey, one day I might not want to be here anymore. One day I might want to start my own thing or explore what other opportunities are out there.
1: Yeah, within within a couple of years of starting engineering work, I started to feel uncomfortable. Um, I, I was realizing that I was spending more time on my volunteering work and being more passionate about that than, than some of the civil engineering work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking advantage of my company's um, employment assistance programs to get access to a coach and get access to, to therapists and get access to career counselors and understand myself better understand become more aware of why I was feeling that way learn how to articulate my own emotions mm-hmm. and realize that oh these values of mine aren't necessarily being activated mm.
0: yeah and I think that your story is so relatable because I know for many of the listeners that uh, from what I've heard them speak about they often do know within the first like two to three months of working a job that it's not necessarily for them but they are still trying to get to know themselves better before they make an irrational decision and quit and go start their own thing like it takes time to really think well if i'm not doing this what could i possibly do so i think it's really inspiring to hear that you know you, you took on some volunteering you used the resources that were available to you in a corporate company which there are often so many that people just forget about it and they don't take advantage of their benefits. But that's a great time to just kind of allow yourself to explore and think and really prep yourself for what might eventually be you leaving that job. So I think that's great that you shared your story on that. Um, Did you have any fears and challenges in thinking about making the transition from corporate life uh, to going out on your own? Like, what came up for you around that thought?
1: So many, so many fears. One of the first things that I realized, especially seeing professionals about it, was ego and status anxiety. There is a lot of status involved in having a full-time job because that's how society generally tends to measure success on average. I'm not saying that corporations are bad. There are a lot of people that work in big organizations that are really happy with their job. And there are many that aren't, that are doing it and staying in it because it's it holds a certain status. And that's what one of the first things I realized I was afraid of, was losing that status to be able to say, yeah, I work for a global engineering firm.
0: Mm-hmm. Were you worried in particular about one person's judgment? Like, was it your parents? Was it your friends? Like, who were you trying to uphold that status for?
1: To be honest, no one was really pressuring me to stay in engineering. Of course, people would say, well, you've got a great job, though. And so that helped reinforce my own beliefs that I was struggling with. Mm -hmm. My belief of thinking, well, I went to school for this. Mm -hmm. I should stay in this. And if I am not staying in this, does that mean that I'm a failure in in what I ended up going to school for? Mm-hmm. Am I not just cut out to be an engineer? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of self-judgment involved that I was actually getting in my own way for quite a few years.
0: Mm-hmm. We put so much pressure on ourselves, but then, yeah, we also worry about what will others say. And for myself, I know that I came from a a family, an extended family of teachers and lawyers and doctors. So for me, when I told them I'm going to start building my own business and creating a brand, I was faced with a lot of resistance, which fueled my own doubt and limiting beliefs because when people have never done something before, they'll often tell you you can't do it. And so I think it's normal to have these thoughts of, well, maybe I should just play it safe because um, others are are projecting their fears onto me. So it's a really challenging um, time or transition to navigate when you're thinking of going from a very safe, secure job with a regular title that we're used to hearing to trying to create something on your own when you don't really know what that's going to look like. And the conversations that you have with your family and friends, they are going to be a little bit murky a little unclear because you're still trying to figure yourself out as you build this new business and i think that's oftentimes what holds people back is that fear of judgment or their own ego getting in the way Um, and i hope that things are changing nowadays that we're more accepting of people who say they're multi-passionate entrepreneurs or they're coaches but I mean, up until a few years ago, I felt like it was just foreign territory for a lot of people to hear that. And I would say, oh, I'm a health coach or a life coach. And they would just look at me and be like, okay, so you're very unsuccessful and you're trying to do this thing that's not going to last.
1: But, you know,
0: things are changing. It's just, it's tough when you don't have that one word answer of what do you do? Um, (laughs) So (laughs) I've definitely faced a fair share of that myself. And it's very intimidating.
1: Absolutely. It's, uh, everyone's going to think that you're crazy until you prove it to them. Yes. So part, a lot of what I work with, um, with my clients as a coach is, is being able to stay grounded despite what everyone else is going to think. And everyone Mm -hmm. is going to have their own opinion. That's not what we can control. What we can control is our own mindset. Mm -hmm. So
0: you said something about everyone will think you're crazy. So what were your crazy visionary ideas when you were thinking of leaving the 9 to 5 world? Like what type of brand or business did you kind of have in mind that you would start pursuing?
1: One of the first things that I knew um, I wanted to do was working with engineers and other analytically minded people. Having grown up in that industry myself where people are really focused on the task, the project, achieving, um, and bringing in concepts around hearts and emotions, everyone that didn't get it were yeah. really hesitant to to support me, particularly because, wow, that's, but they're not, they don't think that way. They don't, they'll never get it. And that's not true as an engineer myself. It's just not something that's been activated or rewarded in me until I decided to pursue it for myself. So that's one of the crazier Responses that I've gotten Mm -hmm. is why would you work with the people that have stereotypically judged that way? Mm -hmm.
0: And so, the vehicle in which you hope to add some heart to an otherwise very mechanical field was by going and certifying yourself in a coaching program, right? So, could you explain? Um, in 2017 how you ended up jumping into your first coaching training program and what that looked like because I think the word coaching is on the rise and there's so much that we still can learn about this somewhat newer emerging field. Um, So I would just love to hear how did you fall into this coaching certification and what led you there?
1: As I was still working for a municipality, I decided to jump into a coaching program by the Coactive Training Institute, recommended by a mentor of mine. And it took a couple of years to get to that point, including seeing my own counselors and then having them do assessments, self-assessments with me, and realizing that some of the top results was that I was meant to be a counselor and that I was meant to be a coach. The type of careers that involved helping other people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as I jumped into that coaching program, I remember the second day going into it. It was here in Toronto. And as I sat down, I realized these, these are my people. These are people that are creating space for other people.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so profound. I I think that's what an exciting moment in life when you're able to finally feel like you're home and in the room of people where you want to be with all of them. Um, And I just think that's really cool that you say through a lot of your own Working with other practitioners, right? That you were doing these self assessments and that it was pointing you towards counselor or coach. I'm a huge fan of things like the Enneagram and doing Strengths Finder tests and working with practitioners and investing in discovering yourself because when you get results like that, yeah, it may not hit you immediately, but if you follow that, like maybe there is a coaching program that you can take to explore that further. Or maybe you can talk to someone who's already in that field and see if it is the right fit for you. So yeah. um, if anyone hasn't you know, done that kind of inner work and the quizzes and all that, there is value to it, right? It really can help you to discover what you are fueled by and like what lights you up. So yeah. I think that's really cool.
1: One of my favorite things about it is that it provided words. articulate why I was doing things in my life and realizing which things I was doing was really more automated and influenced into me as as success factors by other people Mm -hmm. and which ones that I actually was interested in doing like I was actually a really creative person but a lot of that creativity had been overtaken by processes and, and and technicalities
0: Was there a particularly impactful person or um, service provider or therapist that you worked with that really helped you kind of flip the lights on and help you discover who you were? Do you remember anyone in particular or um, any advice that you could offer to the listeners who are thinking, I don't even know where to start on this self-discovery process?
1: I would say every single coach that I had as a teacher and as a trainer through my through my program with, with CTI. Mm-hmm. Every time I had an interaction with them, it was just as much working on myself and being self-aware and understanding what it felt like. Mm-hmm. It inspired me to want to be able to do that for other people and realizing that my ceiling as a coach is dependent on how much self-work I've done.
0: Mm. The work never ends, does it? <laughs> it's a lifelong
1: process, absolutely.
0: <laughs> um, so are you finished this coaching program now? Are you still working through this certification?
1: Yeah, so I, I I finished the core curriculum. I'll be going into the certification over the next year. Before I went into the certification program, which is more the really intense weekly Triads and pod calls with C.T.I. I decided to go into a leadership program. I felt that I wanted to do that first, and the leadership program is also through was also through C.T.I. and it involved me going to Spain, to so Barcelona, Spain for four different retreats, about a week at a time, with a tribe of twenty-four amazing people. Mm-hmm. So
0: cool, and are you now offering services in the coaching industry or is that still something that you're working on putting together? Have you, have you dove in yet? <laughs>
1: yes, I've been coaching for about a little over a year now. Different clients and understanding what clients are being attracted to mm-hmm. to how I am and, and what I bring to the table. And I'm finding that people that are, that are quite analytical and wanting to develop the emotional intelligence competencies within themselves Mm -hmm. are the people that have been attracting so far.
0: Mm -hmm. And to kind of clarify for the listeners, so did you quit your job, your past corporate job in order to go get certified or was there a time where you were getting certified as a coach and also working full time? Can you just maybe walk us through what that chapter of your life looked like?
1: Yes. So I mentioned earlier when we started the, the episode that I had a couple of bigger gaps over the last nine or 10 years. And one of those gaps was quitting my job so I could focus on the leadership program. I knew that it was going to be an intense amount of self-work and I wanted to make myself available, not just emotionally, but also in terms of time. To make sure that I was really working on myself and exploring and doing a lot of networking with people in the industry, in the coaching world, um, organizations that need coaches, understanding where the needs are. Mm-hmm.
0: At this time when you kind of decided to give yourself the space and to explore and network, did you have to take on any like side hustle jobs to kind of fuel you to get through this time where you otherwise wouldn't have been making any income? Or had you saved enough from your full-time gig to be able to give yourself an honor this time without needing to work part-time gigs?
1: Yeah, I had really been intrigued about being an Uber driver. So I became an Uber and Lyft driver and doing that part-time, of course, to be able to pay for some of my coaching and and not have to draw from from the savings that I'd had. And what I loved and was intrigued about was the people aspect. Mm -hmm. As a coach, one of the things that I was really curious about was where are people coming from? How are they getting their perspectives? What have they been influenced by? And as an Uber driver, it was an opportunity to be able to get to know some of the people that were in my vehicle and at the same time get to know Toronto. As a, mm-hmm. as a city
0: mm-hmm. Before becoming an Uber, Uber driver did you feel like you were already having deep meaningful conversations has this been a skill set that you've always been equipped with or did becoming a driver really help to propel you in having better conversations I'm just curious
1: I'd say all of my experiences before that had already started to help me sharpen my skills to be able to Have meaningful conversations. The thing about networking isn't to have a meaningful interaction and getting that perfect every time. The thing about networking is getting to know different personalities and how they respond to how I might talk about something. And if I recognize the different types of personalities, I can craft how I talk about things to be able to talk to them in their own language, if you will, and connect with them more meaningfully so there is no one way to talk to everyone mm. there is many different ways and if we can recognize that before or early stages when we when we approach someone potential clients the people that we have in our lives um, it increases our ability to have those meaningful conversations
0: Mm-hmm. Now, this is obviously a topic that lights you up a decent amount because the way in which I really first connected with you and in what you're creating was through a workshop that I attended here at our co-working space. And it was kind of centered around the art of meaningful conversation. How did you know that you wanted to start exploring this topic further? Like, was it just something that you couldn't stop reading about? Was it kind of just a gut hit that you needed to be the one to deliver uh, the message that we need to be having better conversations? Because I must tell the listeners first, it was such an incredible workshop, first of all. So um, kudos to you for putting that on and takes a lot of bravery too. But it's also something that I have had a lot of Um, discussions with my friends and family around um, in just getting past small talk and and being able to connect with people on a deeper level. But I had never heard someone put words to it and host a one-hour workshop on it. So what got you interested in this?
1: For me, I've, I've realized that I've always been a student of relationships. Understanding what engages one person with another. So whether it was in my career center as a volunteer or whether it was in my salsa classes, what made one dancer have chemistry with another? Whether it was in engineering and on the construction sites that I used to used to be at. Why would I be more connected to a contractor more than another? Um, one of the things that really led me To hone in on meaningful conversations was starting off on producing these soft skills workshops through the volunteer work that I was doing with the Water Environment Federation, doing things like listening, listening workshops and networking and realizing that the base of all of this is how we dialogue with someone else and how we dialogue and choose to understand another person, how we choose to listen to them. How we self-manage our own thoughts as we're listening to them mm-hmm. was a big difference maker in how people felt connected after the conversation.
0: And I'm wondering from your perspective, why is it important for us to have more meaningful conversations on a day-to-day basis? Like, why can't I just talk to people about the weather, the sports teams, and how our days going? Like, why do we need to get past that?
1: One of the things that really inspires me is helping people feel less lonely. Mm. Loneliness and disconnection is, is, an uno- is an avoidable disease if we really want it to be avoidable if we realize that we can make a difference in someone's life simply by asking how their day is going and then asking deeper questions on top of that. Asking about the weather and how the sports team was, how they did or, you know, the Raptors winning and how that became a central point, it's not a bad thing. It's it's a way of initially connecting with someone. Here's something we have in common that is a common value of ours. We love the raptors. How we express that value is what makes us us. Because the raptors for me or for someone else might mean every time they watch it, they're with their friends. And they get to hang out with them and have fun with them. It's not necessarily just the Raptors, it's what the Raptors means to how they get to live their life.
0: Mm, That's really interesting. Yeah, it's something that I've struggled with over the last year or two is feeling very lonely in this entrepreneurial journey and feeling like the network that I've built around me, uh, not a lot of people understand where I'm going and what my lifestyle is like trying to build this business on my own. and. Uh, It's just something that I've tried to be more honest about in the fact that I do feel this way. And for others who I'm helping to build their business, I'm trying to encourage them to start building that tribe of people because it can be a very isolating journey. And I think one way that we get past that as business owners is to get out of the house and to immerse ourselves and others who are um, also out on their own or or building a company of their own. But it's really challenging. And especially when um, you're either not having conversations or just very surface levels, you can kind of feel empty at the end of the day. Right. And I think that's one side effect of not having meaningful conversations And it was always something that I was wondering, like, am I just the only one that likes to go deep with people? Do people not want that? But then I would go to bed at night thinking, God, did I talk to anyone about anything productive today? Um, And I could never figure out whether I was kind of an outlier in thinking that. But again, you put words to what I had been thinking for so long. And I just think it's a topic that's not often discussed and can certainly trigger us feeling lonely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One of the things I've been learning in the entrepreneurial journey is that, often said, paving your own path phrase. And I'm going to bring in my civil engineering experience here where paving a road doesn't take one person. It involves a designer. It involves someone who can operate a, a big piece of equipment to, to tamp down the soil so that it's solid enough and the road doesn't crack. We need a soil scientist, someone who's testing how solid it is and how grounded it is so that it won't crack and won't, the cracks won't show on top of the asphalt. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the asphalt person. You've got the person who drives, who drives the truck that's carrying the asphalt. I'm using this metaphor because... It takes a lot of people to build this road that we think we are building on our own. We need our clients. We need the people that are giving us advice on how to do something better and to be able to ask, who do we ask? Who do we ask for advice? And having those meaningful conversations allows us to open up those avenues of connections with people. Mm
0: -hmm. It's like you almost want to modify that phrase, pave your own path with dream your own path but then enlist support or dream your own path but then like hire your team of people to to build it with you right because you're right you can't do it alone and i love that analogy you should absolutely trademark that before i steal (laughs) it (laughs) for someone listening who has been feeling like they're not having great conversations in their life and are maybe ready to kind of do the work and dig into how they can deepen conversations with friends, family, co-workers. Do you have any tips or tricks or um, just things that they can think about in starting to have more meaningful conversations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things is definitely talk to more people. And then... Understand that different people respond to many different things. Some are just not interested in what you might have to say, and that's reality, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say necessarily anything about you. It's just the way the other person sees the world. Mm -hmm. The other thing as well is understanding what is your impact in the room when you show up. Are you making eye contact with someone when you walk into the room? If you are avoiding eye contact, that is a (laughs) signal to everyone in the room that you don't want to talk to them. Potentially. Unless that person has an intention to really talk to you, even if you don't make eye contact with them. So what are the signals you're giving when you're in a room or in a meeting or in a networking event that might not be inviting for someone else to strike a conversation and of course the other side of it is initiate that conversation with someone who seems to be avoiding it Mm -hmm. because they might not necessarily be avoiding it there just might be a shyness factor to it they haven't had as many networking opportunities and and they're not used to putting themselves out there and and be vulnerable Mm
0: -hmm. and so I know you and I went on a, a walk yesterday just to kind of chat about the podcast. And I think you mentioned that your vision in this brand or business that you're building is to help people build more meaningful relationships. Was that your vision statement or did I did I butcher that completely?
1: You got it perfectly. I got
0: it. And so yes. one of the ways you do that, the, one of the ways that you help people build more meaningful relationships is you help them to have better conversations so that's part of your mission i'm wondering what else is part of your mission in terms of accomplishing your vision of helping people have better relationships
1: one of the things that i've adopted definitely from my salsa dancing mindset is is playfulness and taking on different perspectives and Responding to a situation that we did not expect. On the dance floor, when I'm dancing with someone, if I had an intention of executing these five moves all in a sequence, but then on the second move, there's someone in my way because there's another couple there, I can't just go into that second move, otherwise, someone's going to get hurt. So, very much like in a relationship, we want this person to respond the way we would like them to. Sometimes we imagine a response because, you know, when we go into a conversation, I expect this person to say this, hopefully, Mm -hmm. hopefully they'll like me. And if they don't respond like we imagined, how do we respond to that? Mm -hmm. So meaningful conversations translating into meaningful relationships doesn't just mean everything goes well. It's also having those courage, courageous conversations to say, "Hey, what's what's going on? What's is there something that I did?" and having those hard, emotionally draining conversations of, "Yeah, this is what I need. These are my boundaries," mm-hmm. and being able to express all of that is all part and parcel of having a meaningful conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know you're teaching um, kind of a variety of workshops now and uh, educating people on this topic. And so where else do you see this going? Like when you think of where you're going to be in a year or in two years, what else is going to fill your time and uh, become kind of your legacy? Do you know or are you just taking this one step or one day at a time and Um, Honoring this journey that you're on while you create this?
1: I know that my vision and mission has always been, has been a part of me for a long time, whether or not I knew how to articulate it, whether it was salsa dancing or being volunteering for WEF or for a career center. It was always about connecting people. So over the next couple of years, my objective is to have a business where I get to do that. Whether it's one-on-one coaching or going into organizations and helping them develop better mm-hmm. listening, empathy, compassion for each other for the sake of better projects and better results. Mm-hmm. Or putting together workshops that are open to the public and, and be able to share that message. That's going to be all part of my business and it's very much in the early stages of all of this is possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show is because you are kind of in the thick of this journey right now, right? And I mean, no matter where we are on our business journey, it's always going to be evolving and we're always trying to figure it out. But I love that you're still kind of in that early stage of, okay, what are my offerings? And you're exploring by doing the workshops and you're kind of in the process of building the blog and website And it just goes to show like we all have to start somewhere. We have to try in order to know what that next step is. And so many people are terrified to take those steps of maybe, you know, getting in front of a a group of people and teaching a workshop on something they're passionate about. But the truth is you have to start there in order to know, will this become something bigger or is it something I should push aside and follow another cue? Right. And so I think it's really cool to watch you, um, as you start to build this out. Um, how do you find this journey in terms of your belief in yourself? Like, do you wake up every day just knowing that this business will be successful one day and that all that you're doing is going to create the legacy that you dream of? Or are there days that feel really challenging and unclear and you don't know what to do when you sit down at your laptop?
1: Oh my goodness, it changes day to day. It changes by the hour sometimes in terms of how much I believe in myself. Yes, I know I'm going to do amazing. And there are moments where the doubt seeps in and says, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Why am I in this? Why don't I just go back to what was stable and comfortable? And at the same time... I have to accept myself, and I have to to understand this is part of the process. A big part of the entrepreneurial journey for me has been understanding myself and and changing some of the dialogue that I've had with myself in the past. Very much shame and anxiety driven, screwing up, disappointing this and that person, disappointing that company, and you know, as Brene Brown says in her work shame never really truly serves us so the sooner that we can accept how we do things and that today i only get got this done and and that's okay i'm okay i'm enough and the more that i have that kind of dialogue with myself actually has been immensely improving to how i believe in myself
0: Mm-hmm. Are you a big follower of Brene Brown? Is she kind of someone you cling to all of her content or is there someone else that you've found to be particularly um, inspirational or impactful in you um, building your belief and shifting your mindset? I would just love to know if there is a tool in particular.
1: Yeah, Brene Brown is definitely up there. Um, there are so many inspirational people that you can find on a lot of podcasts um how i built this is one of my favorite podcasts Uh, it's by npr um oprah's um i believe is soul conversations is another one it's more so about the people and their different perspectives it doesn't necessarily mean it will work for you but it's, it's a perspective that you can play with.
0: Love that. Well, I mean, I could chat with you all day, but we've been chatting over an hour now. It's
1: just, wow, I'll, have to have, you. I'll wow. have to have you back on
0: the show because there's still so much more that I'd like to cover in another conversation, including like your process of building your experiential workshops and more about your services and coaching. But I think this was so great just to hear an overview of your life and how you got to where you are today. And that's what the listeners need is to hear that others just like them are are paving the way, (laughs) but not alone. (laughs) Not alone. Um, But I do want to ask you one last question before I let you go. And this is a question that I ask all my visionary guests, but I'm going to tweak it a bit for you. So for someone listening to this podcast, who's currently working a nine to five or more of a typical corporate job, but they're kind of yearning to start venturing into their own passion project or they want to start a business on their own, but they don't know where to start. They don't know where to begin. Do you have any advice that you would offer to that person who just feels stuck or stagnant, but has that desire to eventually start something on their own?
1: What worked for me was the concept of prototyping, which is part of the design thinking process. If you think about any companies or products or brands that have been wanting to launch a product, they test it out on potential audiences first and and tweak sometimes who the audience even was in the first place that was different from what they intended. So if you have a passion and you have an interest, you don't necessarily need to make a full-time job out of it, but it's worth exploring how that passion might actually be serving a need in the world. Test it out. That was all my volunteering was for, was testing out, not just improving my skill set, but if I can share it with someone else. Mm.
0: I love that. It actually reminds me too, before we end this interview off, but I have a lot of friends who will sometimes confide in me and say, Oh, I've got this like really great idea. And I've been thinking about it for years and years and years. And I'm like, have you told anyone or have you ever told anyone you were interested in health and fitness? Cause I sure didn't know. And it seems like no one else knows. And they're like, no, I've just kind of kept it inside. But I think you, you need to share that and see are people interested and tell someone else and, and get involved in the communities that um, are related to your ideas. Otherwise it's just all in your head and you're not prototyping, right. And you're not getting out there to see if there is a need. So yeah, it just, it's always a good reminder to connect with people and tell them what you're thinking and and see if there's an opportunity to share that passion um, in person. So It's a great tip.
1: And that's very much the work that we get to do. It's just a privilege was helping people get out of their own way Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. be able to do what they want to do.
0: Absolutely. Well, Alvin, thank you so Mm -hmm. much for sharing your story on the Visionary Life Podcast. And we'll have to have you back too. So (laughs) (laughs) hopefully you enjoyed it. Well, you know where to find me. I'll be in the (laughs) co-working space. Thanks, Alvin. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Visionary Life. I love bringing you these conversations on a weekly basis. So if you could help me out by rating and reviewing the show in your iTunes app, I would be so grateful. You can also support the show by taking a quick screenshot of the episode and sharing it on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Kelsey Riedel. If you're feeling stuck, uninspired, stagnant, bored, or confused in what your next step should be, it's time to take action. Please reach out because I'd love to connect with you. I'll catch you in the next episode.